Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest today is Terrell Givens, winner of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University for his new book, Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. Eugene England was one of the most influential and controversial intellectuals in modern Mormonism. And in this uh, biography, Givens paints a multifaceted portrait of a devout Latter-day Saint whose precarious position on the edge of church hierarchy was instrumental to his ability to shape the study of modern Mormonism. Terrell Givens joins us for the conversation following the news. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio.
Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest today is Terrell Givens, winner of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University for his new book, Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. Eugene England was one of the most influential and controversial intellectuals in modern Mormonism. He lived in the crossfire between the religious tradition and reform. And in this biography, Professor Gibbons paints a multifaceted portrait of a devout Latter-day Saint whose precarious position on the edge of church hierarchy was instrumental to his ability to shape the study of modern Mormonism. Terrell Gibbons is the Neil L. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University, and J.B. is a, a Bostwick Professor of English Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Professor Gibbons, uh, welcome to the program. Hi. Good to be here. Thanks. Good to have you on. I should mention, author of uh, many books um, as well. This is, the, this is the latest. And congratulations on this award, Evans Biography Award. Thank you very much. Uh, so I want to start with your accepting this assignment. Uh, this this was uh, put out there by uh, Eugene England's uh, widow, Charlotte, right? Uh, you turned her down first time, and then a while later you accepted this. What changed in the interim? Well, a number of things changed. One was that it, when, when he died in 2001 and Charlotte asked me to write his biography, I was uh, I was still a young junior professor. I wasn't really of his generation. I felt there were other people much more qualified to write his life history, and I just wasn't that sure at that time. Uh, I guess how how relevant, how pertinent his life uh, was in in the current historical moment. By the time Charlotte approached me again. Uh, in about, oh, that would have been, I guess, five or six years ago. Um, I had, you know, I was an established uh, scholar and writer by that time. I, uh, I I think I was seeing developments in the contemporary church that made me think uh, the life and example of Jean England was more relevant than, than ever before. Plus, anybody who knows Charlotte knows she's an awfully, uh, awfully difficult person to turn down. <laughs> so, so I uh, acceded to her wishes, and I'm uh, and, and really glad I did. <laughs> um, and the result is this book. Um, tell me about the Eugene England you know. You knew. I don't think you knew him incredibly well, but you did have some interactions with him. I had just a few interactions with him, and uh, some of them were really quite moving. Let me just give one example that I think really well illustrates the character of the man that I was writing about. Um, I had a, my first book came out in 1997. Uh, it was White on the It was a study of 19th century anti-Mormonism. And uh, Gene was one of the, the few people who, who noticed the book, paid attention to it. It was an, uh, an Oxford University Press publication. He invited me out to Utah to speak about it. 
and uh, there was quite a large audience assembled. He introduced me. I, I, I gave a brief presentation, and then there was a Q&A, which uh, I think every young uh, junior professor fears. <laughs> and uh, a few questions came, not always of the friendliest sort. And one question came that just that just stumped me, and I just stood there for a moment paralyzed. Uh, right, every every scholar's worst nightmare, large audience, and a dumb silence. And then I just felt this gentle touch on my shoulder from behind, and uh, Gene stepped forward and he said, well, I, I think Professor Gibbons actually answers that question really nicely in Chapter 4, and, you know, he went on for a few minutes, and then I was able to pick up where he had left off. But it was just that kind of uh, a kind of gentle act of compassion uh, that one doesn't often see in the public sphere of, uh, of American higher education. Uh, it was a touching moment. And then the next time that I saw him um, uh, was when he was in the hospital and had been suddenly stricken with what later turned out to be brain cancer. And uh, I, I think I knew and I think he knew that that was the last time that I was probably going to see him. And uh, he had some, some kind and rather poignant words that he spoke to me on, on that occasion when he clearly foresaw his uh, imminent death and uh, just commented sadly on the fact that he felt he had been abandoned by his church, even though he always felt, in, in his words he said, but I always felt I was a defender of the church. And he, he couldn't understand the predicament in which he found himself in those closing days of his life. That illustrate those two stories illustrate the the range. I think right. More than one person uh, referred to him as the most Christ-like man they'd known. Right, uh, living his religion very well. He was also seen as a dangerous radical. Right. Um, I wonder if That's we right. could we could in your conclusion you you make a statement. Of maybe we could go to legacy and then loop back to his life a bit. Um, but but you said his funeral. Uh, everybody of every strain wanted to claim Eugene England as as their patron saint. That was the thing about Gene England, is no matter which side of the divide you found yourself on, intellectually or religiously, uh, you felt that he was your advocate and your friend. And uh, he really, I mean, if you just consider the name of the journal that he founded, uh, co-founded in 1966, Dialogue, that word epitomized his whole life's mission as he understood it. He just wanted to build bridges. But in order to do that, he really had to, and successfully did, enter successfully into the minds and hearts of those on both sides of any argument. And so that won him many, many friends, but it, it won him a lot of suspicion as well. What if we go into a little more depth on this on this uh, conflict between hierarchy and uh, innovation, you might say. Uh, you write uh, of his accomplishments. Um, he was a prime mover behind the founding of self-conscious Mormon literature, as well as a larger field of Mormon studies, uh, founded the Association of Mormon Letters. You mentioned dialogue. And then I want to quote you here. Uh, Finally, by virtue of his propensity for finding himself in a conflicted public posture, England came to embody in a painful and costly, agonistic way, the uneasy tension between conscience and authority. And then you go into uh, kind of a history of that conflict, uh, including conflicts between uh, Brigham Young and Orson Pratt. What if you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, you know, the conflict between conscience and authority is one of the oldest uh, motifs in the history of religion, especially one can think of Thomas More, Martin Luther, any number of figures who felt torn between loyalty to an institution and loyalty to a sense of conscience. I think what makes the problem particularly poignant and vexing in Gene England's case and I think part of the problem is that he never quite recognized the, the, nat- the unique nature of his predicament, and it's this, that the Latter-day Saint Church has one of the, the highest, most rigid kind of forms of ecclesiastical hierarchy and authority uh, in the Christian world, alongside the Catholic Church, uh, which means that to be a member is to buy into a certain notion of of hierarchical authority, that the Church has a divine nature to it and a divine administration. At the same time, Mormonism being born and bred in an American environment, largely, has a thoroughly Protestant sensibility. So one one is going to find here an almost irresolvable conflict between the high regard that the culture has for individual autonomy and authority of conscience, coming into conflict with belief that, that there are these men in Salt Lake City who are vested with authority and priesthood keys to determine matters of, of doctrine. And, and so Gene England found himself continually at the intersection of that conflict, wanting to honor his conscience, but also believing that he was a servant of a divinely authorized church and a source of perpetual agony. And we'll get into uh, some of those flashpoints, right? Vietnam War, race, and uh, and others as we as we go along. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Terrell uh, Givens, um, who is Neil L. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University, and uh, author of the new biography of Eugene England uh, called "Stretching the Heavens." And that that biography is winner of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. Um, so I wonder if we could uh, jump into uh, Gene England's life just a, a little bit. Um, you, uh, th- there's an anecdote. Uh, he he grew up in uh, Downey, Idaho, right? Just just north of where I'm talking to you uh, in Cache Valley. Um, and uh, you talk about uh, there's an anecdote uh, recounted by his friend Bert Wilson. Uh, you, I'll just quote this: Well into the night, camped in the front yard, Gene rose and began sprinting in circles to Bert's amazement. Gene explained that he was unsettled by the stars, by thoughts of infinity, by the disturbing possibility that the universe might not have existed. Why did anything exist? I don't know how old he was, but that's that's pretty precocious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. And he was a very, very precocious child and a precocious student, and always excelled. And he was uh, a deep thinker. And uh, so he, it was actually on his mission. He he went to Samoa on a three-year submission with his new bride, and it was on his mission that he realized that he was never going to be satisfied uh, with a life in the sciences or the mathematics where he thought he was headed. He was just too too deeply invested in uh, in questions of ultimate meaning, and uh, so that's what, what led him eventually into the humanities and into his uh, what, what he would call his speculative theological work. What... Uh... What changed out there in Samoa? By the way, this is pretty unusual, even for those times, wasn't it, to 
to go on a mission with your wife? I couldn't find uh, evidence of, of any other missionaries who were called jointly with their wives, except a few who went to the Polynesian islands. So, yeah, it was highly unusual even then, and completely unexpected on the part of, of Gene. He uh, submitted his mission papers, uh, fully expecting that he was going to leave his wife behind. And when he opened his mission call, to their mutual surprise and delight, it, uh, it was a call to both of them to go to Samoa. So uh, quite the uh, quite the baptism by fire for a newlywed couple um, uh, to be kind of in a paradisiacal location, but also facing all of the you know the challenges and and uh, growth difficulties of missionaries in a foreign land. Um, I think what was most formative about his experiences there is that it wasn't principally an evangelizing mission; it was uh, an education mission. He he and Charlotte both taught. Uh, various age levels, but in different locations of Samoa, they were primarily educators. And so I think it was that experience of teaching and of just being a kind of, you know, chaplain minister to people in all kinds of situations, uh, familial and personal struggles, that he uh, he just developed this this deep kind of uh, capacity for empathy and and love and sympathy and understanding and uh, just knew that he he had to pursue some kind of a life that was going to bring him into intimate connection with people and their needs so after their mission they went to Stanford I believe right after the mission yes after yeah. the mission mm-hmm. he uh, he first he finished up at University of Utah and then he was a Danforth fellow highly prestigious uh, fellowship and went to Palo Alto and was there for several years at Stanford, uh, more years than should have been the case because he was so distracted by his uh, interest in founding a new journal, which he and some friends did in 1966, and that was the launch of the, of the Dialogue uh, magazine. Uh, it... Maybe we could pause right here and talk about dialogue. What what was the original aim, and uh, and then what what did it become uh, uh, over those years? And and did uh, did Eugene England was he pleased with what it became? Well, I think it's important to set the historical context for for the emergence of dialogue, and and this is true. This is really important for understanding his life as a whole. Is that he emerges as an intellectual at a kind of juncture between two fraught periods in Latter-day Saint intellectual history. The, the 1920s, uh, teens and 20s, had in many ways been a kind of high point of, of what I call Mormon intellectual adventurism. There were a number of people with PhDs on the quorum. You had people of the stature of John Whitsow, the scientist, and Joseph Merrill, and James Talmadge. Uh, the Church in those decades turned to the intellectuals of the Church to write the manuals uh, and to be exemplars of the life of the mind for Latter-day Saints. And in the 1930s, there's a, a, a kind of a, a catastrophic failure of an experiment where the Church sent a number of their educators to the Chicago Divinity School for training, and they come back to BYU, um, in many cases thoroughly converted to the higher criticism and to a kind of liberal progressive Protestantism. 
And so the church shuts down that program. And in 1933, Roberts dies, Talmadge dies, J. Reuben Clark gets called to the presidency. He's an ultra-conservative, orthodox uh, member of the presidency. And suddenly there's a kind of stifling of, uh, of intellectual exploration and uh, just a period of real retrenchment. And then that opens up briefly kind of in the 19, late 1950s and 60s. BYU Studies is launched in 1959. Uh, the Mormon History Association begins in 1965. This is the time that Gene England is there at Stanford, and, and suddenly he and others are kind of catching fire with this new sense of intellectual openness and exploration. There's the beginning of, you know, what are going to be the, the great Leonard Arrington years called Camelot, the church history department, the professionalization of history is taking place. And suddenly there's just all this open inquiry, exploration of church history and the opening of the archives, and, and uh, so um, clearly, uh, as Gene foresees, this means that there's going to come uh, into play what, what, what I call a 75-year delayed crisis of modernism. And what I mean by that is with, with, the, with the growth of the historical consciousness and sophistication in biblical and historical studies in the opening of the 20th century, both the Catholic Church and the Protestants experience what they call this crisis of modernism, which is a conflict between a historical consciousness and what are now becoming outdated ideas about biblical inspiration and divine direction behind church formation and growth. And so this is postponed in the case of Mormonism, because Mormonism had kind of kept themselves aloof from most intellectual currents and trends. They didn't have a professionally trained clergy. They had uh, a very high conception of prophetic authority and inspiration, and so they weren't that much affected by outside developments in intellectual and cultural history. And suddenly, these are now looming on the horizon, as I said, as the archives are becoming open, the history department is becoming professionalized, and uh, so one of the uh, well, one of the developments is this this perceived need for a journal that will help wrestle through some of the questions that are emerging, some of the new discoveries that are being made in in history. And Gene wants to create a forum for exploration and conversation about these new developments, and, and that's what leads to the the founding of Dialogue in 1966. At first, it's a kind of stunning success. They, they have a, a huge, a relatively big subscriber base for a new journal. They have the support of some of the general authorities in Salt Lake City, while others are suspicious and skeptical of, of where this kind of intellectual adventurism is going to lead. Um, and, and true to their fears, very soon, dialogue becomes perceived. It becomes kind of classified as a, as a radical journal, as a journal that gives too much voice to dissidents or to critics of the Church, and it immediately becomes the locus of just major controversies and conflict in uh, Gene's life in particular and in the larger cultural landscape. 
Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back and talk much more, obviously, about Eugene England, this uh, key figure in the history of uh, Mormonism. Uh, Tara Givens is winner of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University for his new book, Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. Uh, Let's uh, take a break. Come back after this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and support for programming on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University and the National Endowment for the Humanities Dialogues on the experience of war program bringing war home. Object Object Stories, Memory, and Modern War Project, Saturday, October 22nd, at the USU Moab Center, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., an Artifacts Roadshow, where the public can share 20th and 21st century war objects on stories, that's storytelling, storytelling details at upr.org. Do you have a wartime souvenir displayed in your home or tucked away in storage? USU's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies project, Bringing War Home, invites the community, military and civilian alike, to share your wartime objects and the personal stories that surround them. In partnership, Utah Public Radio will record your story at one of the several project roadshows. You can find details and sign up at upr.org. Sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Jay Allison, producer of the Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's the Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent for NPR. Having access to information serves as an equalizer. That is why UPR is introducing a 24-7 news, music, and community broadcast service for listeners who prefer connecting through programs available in Spanish. UPR Tres provides facts about health, education, and business heard in Spanish anytime, anywhere. Details at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Terrell Givens. He's Neil L. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University and Jabez A. Bostwick Professor of English Emeritus at the University of Richmond, author of many books. The latest is uh, Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. That book is winner of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. Um, So, Tara Givens, I want to just read this quote. Uh, This is jumping ahead a bit, a little bit in the the book. Uh, When uh, um, Eugene England was, I think, an institute teacher, he was teaching the church education system. We're talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So a fellow teacher in the church educational system wrote to him to tell him, this is a quote, I just want uh, you to know that not everyone agrees with you, and I'm one of them. You've been writing for 20 years as if you knew all the answers. Maybe you should just be quiet for 20 years. That, that's <laughs> illustrative of this kind of, this uncomfortable is kind of a, a not the right word, uh, kind of a too light a word for for where Eugene England found himself many times. 
Yeah, yeah, he sure did. One person who actually was a friend and, and even admirer once said to me, reflecting about Gene, yeah, his problem was he never had a thought he didn't write about. <laughs> so um, he he was just very, very expressive, um, and he was always challenging the borders of orthodoxy. And uh, something about cultural Mormonism, it seems to attract a lot of people who are self-appointed guardians of orthodoxy. And so there were a number of his colleagues, uh, especially when he became a professor in the English department at BYU in 1977, who thought that uh, his tone was just not consistent with a kind of quiet, submissive orthodoxy that had become the cultural standard. And uh, so, yeah, he aroused uh, a, a fair number of critics. It was hard to be indifferent to Gene. What I found in doing dozens of interviews and reviewing hundreds and hundreds of letters and exchanges was that Gene was the kind of guy that you just really, really loved and admired, or he just irritated the heck out of you. But <laughs> but it was hard to remain neutral. <laughs> I wonder if you talk a little bit about Lowell Benyon. This is, uh, you, you write that uh, Lowell Benyon was perhaps the most beloved lay Latter-day Saint of his era. However, if his life was an inspiration and prod to uh, Eugene England, it should also have been a warning. Yeah, um, Lowell Benyon was another one of these individuals. Just uh, some people have said that if that if you know c- Catholics have their their Mother Teresa, we have our Lowell Benyon. He really was a really godly Christian man, uh, the greatest humanitarian that the Church has known, certainly in the 20th century. Um, he wasn't a dissident, but he was a a quiet. Uh, I guess I would call him a quiet doctrinal nonconformist. He was was deeply unhappy with the church's position that banned uh, people of African American heritage from the priesthood and the temple. He did not become an outspoken critic of that policy, but in his quiet ways and in his role as uh, an instructor, uh, an institute instructor, uh, he 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 was successful in getting students, including Jane England, to question. The, the correctness of such practices and doctrines. And uh, he, he was probably the, the most important formative influence uh, intellectually and spiritually in the life of young Gene England, just because there was, a, there was a formative moment, especially in a class where Gene just found himself mouthing a kind of cliched bit of, of folk theology to explain the priesthood ban. And, with just a, rel- a well-placed question, Lowell Benyon got him to interrogate himself and what were not doctrines as much as cultural explanations of doctrines. And eventually, Lowell Benyon was pressured out of his position, essentially, uh, essentially fired from his position as institute director, um, because he was seen as challenging uh, the, uh, the priesthood uh, ban, as well as uh, just moving in other directions that seemed too liberal for what had become by that point in time an extremely conservative, even reactionary uh, hierarchy. Uh, tell me a little bit more about Eugene England and and uh, this, this question of race, right? Uh, blacks and the priesthood. Uh, what was his contribution, uh, do you think, in this, this ongoing well, well, there's something really ironic here, because... Um, in, in both in terms of his views about race and his views about um, gender and same-sex attraction, and 
he he espoused positions which were considered too radical for the time, but today they would be considered um, uh, too conservative uh, for them the moment. But in terms of the priesthood ban, um, of course, he's he's a student there at Stanford in the midst of the 60s. He's become, he's become a kind of political activist on the fronts of both anti-war activism and anti-racism activism. He never disputes the fact that the priesthood ban uh, was divine in origin, but his argument from early on was that it was an imposition that resulted from the um, the racism of the church and not the deficiencies of the African-American people. His primary influence, and uh, it was arguably an enormous influence in the uh, elimination of the ban, was that he convinced Lester Bush to expand a book review he had written about the, the priesthood ban uh, into a, a long, full historical treatment um, and in which Lester Bush made a pretty convincing case that there was no evidence of a revelatory basis for the priesthood ban, that Joseph Smith had, in fact, ordained blacks, and this uh, this article was just explosive in these these new insights and uh, kind of historical revelations that they uncovered. Uh, the Kimball family indicates that Spencer W. Kimball was very familiar with the essay, had a copy of it, and it was heavily underlined and annotated. And so it seemed clear that that research by Lester Bush, which was promoted and encouraged by uh, Gene England, was one of the factors uh, that the uh, leadership considered as they reversed that ban in 1978. Mm. You write that one of the key contributions Gene England made to his faith tradition, at his cost, was to eliminate the chasm between Latter-day Saint theology and Latter-day Saint culture. This goes it applies to race, right, but, but more broadly as well, uh, kind of a through theme. Yeah, well, you know, ever since the 1960s kind of uh, response to sexual revolution, the Latter-day Saint Church has become more and more closely aligned with right uh, conservative politics and, in many cases, right-wing politics. Um, Gene England was very adept at pointing out some of the incongruities um, between the culture and and the gospel, as taught in Latter-day Saint scriptures and by Joseph Smith. Uh, for example, the the, the um, doctrine and covenants uh, indicates that Latter-day Saints should proclaim peace and not war. Um, the Book of Mormon itself says that there should be no there is no distinction with God between black and white. Um, the Latter Day Saint scriptures, like the Old Testament, preaches a social gospel. And so I think what irritated people the most about Gene England was that in so many cases, his criticisms were impossible to rebut. He was on pretty solid ground, uh, like Hugh Nibley later would be in his social criticisms. And uh, the irony is that he was never hostile to the church doctrines. He was actually invoking what he understood to be church doctrines in his criticisms of where Latter-day Saint culture was heading. Uh, tell me about—you uh, talk about this in your chapter on, on the, the Vietnam War. Um, 
how Latter-day Saints, who are persecuted people, in fact, left the United States, right? Then the United States caught up to them. Uh, by this time, 60s, 70s, uh, as a group, they had become very patriotic. And uh, so an expression against the Vietnam War was seen as, uh, I guess, not orthodox. Yeah, and I think, you know, Harold Bloom has written about this when he wrote his book a couple decades ago on the American religion. And most historians of the Church recognize that there was a period back in the 1890s that initiated what, what they call the Americanization of Utah. So, right, Mormons were so excoriated and persecuted, they were um, denied the opportunity to, to create a state and become a part of the federal system in that way, uh, because they were seen as alien and foreign and un-American. Um, I, I've written on the subject as well of how Mormons were even constructed into an ethnicity that was seen to be incongruent with American values. And uh, and so there was a self-conscious effort that was made to prove to the American public that they were just as Christian and just as American as the rest of the populace. And so they succeeded to the point they were right, accepted for statehood. And by the time you get to the 1950s, right, the Tabernacle Choirs, America's Most Beloved Choir, they're singing for presidential inaugurations. Harold Bloom will write that that Mormons are the American religion, they embody American values of family and individualism and patriotism. And so um, the, the, the whole culture of the Church had become hyper-patriotic, and uh, to the point that, as you say, by the time we get to the Vietnam War, there seemed uh, very little willingness to question the rightness of the war, in their zeal to show that they were loyal and faithful American citizens. You have, I think it's an opening quote in one of the chapters, a letter, a quote from a letter from uh, Eugene England to Marion Hanks, uh, I think probably by that time was the general authority of the Church, saying that this might be the occasion for our first disagreement, the, the war he's referring to. Yeah, Marion D. Hanks had the position of being representative, uh, I don't know the exact title, but he was effectively the serviceman's representative, or the, the, the representative of the leadership to the American servicemen. And so, of course, in that capacity, he's going to have intimate interaction with American GIs, he's going to feel tremendous love and loyalty to them. And so he had been, until then, a kind of patron and friend of Gene England. They had corresponded, he had shown support for, for Gene. But Gene was so uh, vehement in his outspokenness to the, to the Vietnam War. He, the, the, probably the very, very first time that he uh, encountered an ecclesiastical conflict was when he wrote letters in support of students who were claiming uh, um, conscientious objector status as Latter-day Saints. That's not something that anybody anticipated or for which there was precedent as far as anyone knew. And so that did put him at odds with Marion D. Hanks and others who were very patriotic supporters of the war and the Americans fighting in that war. This is kind of a running theme. It's uh, the, this this pain occasioned by the, this distance. Uh, Eugene England feels like he's, in his own way, defending his faith, right? And um, but but, uh, but there's but there's pushback. And, yeah, and I. Yeah, and I think there was just this recurrent feeling of uh, of loneliness and isolation. He, you know, he uh, his father had great expectations for him, and you know, I'm no Freudian, but it's clear in his journals and letters that uh, he had this just 
tremendous desire to to make his father proud. And his father had been a mission president and was an intimate of the, the prophets and apostles. And and uh, Gene just wasn't following in that track, so he felt that he had disappointed his father. He loved and he, he idolized the brethren, even after he had been publicly humiliated and reproved by uh, apostolic decree. He wrote in his private journal that those men were still his heroes and that he loved and admired him, but it broke his heart that he didn't feel their approbation. And uh, that was something that uh, pained him to to the last day of his life. There's a very telling uh, story that he loved to tell, which which says a lot about the man, right? You write that uh, he loved to repeat uh, the episode of Levi Savage. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell us about this, uh, which does seem to epitomize a lot of what Eugene England stood for and went through. Yeah, this was at the time of, uh, of the, the handcart expedition. Levi Savage was convinced that it was too late to to head across that vast stretch of um, territory. It's too late in the season. It's going to be disastrous. But he indicated that uh, if that was the decision of that band of pioneers, then he would go with them, and if necessary, die with them, even though he was convinced that, that their decision was wrong-headed. And uh, Gene was, uh, he was, he, he was a, a Mormon through and through. Every fiber of his body uh, resonated to uh, that, the tune of that community. And uh, so he, he would never have accepted the label of dissident or critic. He saw himself as absolutely faithful committed and, uh, you know, ready to lay down his life if need be for the Church. But he was not going to abandon uh, his what he saw as his mission to point out those ways in which his people were failing to live up to, uh, to the responsibilities of their callings as Christians. Let's take another break. We'll come back with a final segment uh, with uh, Terrell Gibbons. He's written a new biography of uh, Eugene England. It's called Stretching the Heavens, the Life of Eugene England in the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. And uh, he is a winner for that biography of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. We'll have more following this. Utah Public Radio is streaming music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue. Listen 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR Tres button. Utah Public Radio está transmitiendo programas de música y charlas en español de Radio Bilingue. Escuche las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga click en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR Tres. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and support for Eating the Past, heard only on Utah Public Radio, is made possible through a grant from Utah Humanities. Listen to episodes on this station Sundays at noon through our UPR mobile app or online at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University creators of the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. Information and episodes are available at utahwomen.org.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have about 10 minutes left in this conversation with Terrell Givens, who is Neil L. Maxwell, Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University, and Jabez A. Bostwick, Professor of English Emeritus at University of Richmond, author of uh, several books, latest to which is called Stretching the Heavens, the Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. And he's a winner for that biography of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. Um, so, Tara Gibbons, I want to get into uh, Eugene England's time at BYU, which was, I think, a, a dream, right? And then it uh, ended. Um, but but uh, before that, um, one of the chapters is uh, is titled History, Hollywood, and a Theolo- Theologian Out of Season. So this surprised me. I didn't know this chapter. Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, there was a uh, Hollywood filmmaker who uh, at that time was uh, kind of at the top of his game, and he's, he's, he's caught me in a moment now where I don't I don't recall the director's name, um, but he directed such film greats as The Battle of the Bulge and, and others. And he came to Utah having in mind to do a film on Brigham Young. This would have been 1975, and Gene England at this time hadn't yet secured employment at Brigham Young University, as he would later learn. It was because of his association with Dialogue Magazine. And so he was working uh, part-time with Leonard Arrington, and Leonard Arrington assigned him the task of, um, yeah, it was Philip Jordan was the name of the filmmaker, just came to me. And so he had done King of Kings and El Cid, and so he was, Gene was assigned to help Jordan put together a historical materials out of which he could weave a script for this Brigham Young movie. And uh, Jordan was extremely impressed with the quality of the historical department and just the caliber and, and the amount of talent in Utah and he conceived the idea of actually creating a film studio and uh, thought that he would hire Gene to be a, a part of this project. And so for a while there, Gene had visions of becoming a screenwriter and um, become allied with who then was a major figure in Hollywood. Uh, the film eventually came out, it was kind of a flop, and and uh, so the plans for the for the studio didn't go anywhere. But he had a brief flirtation with with fame, and at least in his dreams. Yeah, that's uh, that was kind of a nice, <laughs> fun episode. Uh, so he did realize his dream. He was employed by BYU. Um, problems cropped up the, the, on the same theme that we were t- talking about, right? That's right. So once he severed his connection with Dialogue, um, he withdrew from the editorial board. He was then granted employment at Brigham Young University, and he uh, he took advantage of his position there. Uh, he had immediately founded the Association for Mormon Letters, and he um, he really was one of the primary figures behind the development of a kind of uh, consciousness that there was a Mormon literature and that Latter-day Saints could do more to prosecute this this program of advancing Mormon literature. What's interesting about the origins of that program is that because Gene worked in the historical department, he had firsthand access to myriad journals and diaries, and he became convinced that Latter-day Saints really excelled at this genre of journal writing, and that it deserved to be taken more seriously as a literary genre. And so that's really where we find the roots of his call 
to action to to create uh, a Mormon literature, and he taught um, classes on the history of Mormon literature. Yeah, but he immediately became, uh, came into conflict again with ecclesiastical authorities and administration officials there at BYU for a number of reasons. One was because there was a, a, a highly controversial dismissal of a colleague of his, largely because she had been a very vocal supporter of abortion rights. And, of course, the Church has a pretty strong position against uh, the practice of abortion, but Jean was sympathetic to her and her position, and probably the only vocal defender she had at BYU. He, he continued to be a vocal critic of what he thought was the unfair kind of degradation of women, the, their failure to achieve equal status. He wasn't arguing that they should have rights to the priesthood, but short of that, he thought there was a lot the Church could do. He was a very vocal defender in that regard. But, you know, behind the scenes, I think most people don't know that the, the, the primary source of conflict actually was the fact that he continued to promulgate and to teach in fireside and gospel doctrine settings his theology of atonement, which he had first published back in 1966. He'd been told by two apostles that his teachings on atonement were contrary to church doctrine, but he, he continued to, to, to teach and publish in that vein, and that actually was mentioned at the moment of his dismissal from BYU, which which happened, of course, in 1998. Mm. We just have uh, about two or three minutes left, so I want to move to legacy here at the end of the uh, of the program. What uh, what would you say? What, what are the main points of Eugene England's legacy? Well, you know, I I had access to over 200 boxes of correspondence and writings and articles. I had uh, access to a lot of other private materials that his widow Charlotte shared with me, and I just have to say that I've you know I've written biography before, done a lot of work in cultural history. Uh, I've, I've come to know I think fairly intimately any number of individuals from the past, but the most moving experience I had throughout this entire project was when Charlotte gave to me two thick binders full of of dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds, of personal testimonies and attestations of the impact that Jeanine had had in these individual lives. And uh, I can't imagine uh, having the, the capacity to do that much good in a personal interactive sense with other individuals. And uh, I, I found it touching and reaffirming of the fact that the greatest legacies that that we can leave, and I think that the gene left was one that might never make it into uh, the history books, but it was certainly registered on the hearts of, of hundreds and maybe thousands of individuals. You uh, you quote Eugene England's comment on a student paper in the, in that chapter on legacy. Um, I'll quote this. This is his comment to the student: "Take some risks, leave something unresolved but deeply felt," and that seemed to me to be perfect. I, I think that absolutely typifies his life, and I think that typifies the life of any true uh, disciple. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, life was meant to be lived on the precipice perpetually. And I think ever since, you know, I, I love the way Latter-day Saints narrate that story of the the, the garden story in Eden, where the, the, the question isn't that we confront most days, isn't how do I choose between good and evil? The, the question is how do I choose between competing goods? Uh, it's it's the complexities, it's the nuances, it's the gray areas that we have to wrestle with most. 
and asking hard questions always entails risk. And I think that's what Gene taught us. Well, the book is out and available. It's the winner of the 2022 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. The book is titled Stretching the Heavens, the Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. The author is Terrell Givens, who is Neil L. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University and J. A. Bostwick Professor of English Emeritus at University of Richmond. Terrell Givens, a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been great conversing with you. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, today we'll go out, as we do uh, once a month, with our commentator, Ta- Tanya Gibson, and her commentary, She Goes On. We just went through homecoming season at our house, a first as parents, and I noticed a couple of things. The first, asks are a big deal. Sure, I've seen the elaborate promposals on social media, but I didn't think I understood the value placed on a well-punned poster board until this fall. And that even though they are called promposals, they are actually for every dance. Every one. I also didn't realize that nearly everyone expected it, as well as one in return in order to answer. I assumed, very incorrectly, that it was something a few people did. I understand now... Its assumed spread has reached critical mass. While this is all well and good, I had one thought throughout watching the entire process play out. What if you wanted to say no? Do you feel pressure because of the effort or worse, the audience that may be watching? What if you want an easy escape button because you don't enjoy being put on the spot or someone you don't particularly like is doing the asking? I keep thinking back to my 20s, and I would have been mortified and immediately said no had my boyfriend staged an ask, whether to a dance or for marriage, that was over the top in public. Zero pictures exist of him asking me to marry him, and not once have I thought I was shortchanged because of that. It clearly happened. I'm okay it's not set in film. I don't believe in accepting dates out of politeness and feel this entire phenomenon could set up our teens to being backed into situations of too much pressure or simple unnecessary awkwardness. Adults sometimes struggle to navigate these waters. Why are we putting our teens in these situations with our encouragement? How about asking your intended face-to-face and then asking if they'd like a follow-up poster or gift for pictures? That seems a better situation altogether and gives parents a lot of room for conversations surrounding consent and rejection and navigating either potential relationships or pitfalls. The next thing I noticed is how it can be an event, a whole day affair kind of event, a day date, dinner, pictures, the dance, possibly the game the night before. I'm not certain I spent that much time at my own wedding and reception. Okay, maybe I did. But the time commitments possibly equal one another. Was it always this way? Never having attended a high school homecoming dance, I don't know, but I suspect not. I do wonder how it evolved to this over time and if it's like this outside of our area, especially for a dance other than prom. My child's group was really good about giving enough time for everyone to leave the day date and get ready for pictures, which, oh, the pictures. On the way to dinner, my husband and I bobbed and weaved through several groups trying to find the exact right place for those special shots. It was a bit crazy as we made our way to the restaurant's front door, dodging girls in shiny dresses and boys in matching ties. 
I had to wonder if our town had a line of every professional photographer cranking out the group and couple shots for hours leading up to the dance, or if they were striking a pose with eager moms with brilliant camera phones, anxious and grateful for the excuse to see the kids scrubbed up nicely. Either way, some of the shots were exquisite. While I'm a hobby photographer, one with folders of our lives divvied up by year and then further by month, and then if applicable by big event, it's a well-documented life, and one thing I refuse to spend money on is formal pictures taken every year. It's just not my thing. Our family has plenty of informal shots of us together, and I have been kicking around the idea of suckering one of my friends into taking more organized shoot of us soon, but it always seems to fall off the to-do list. So I do not begrudge the photo shoots and certainly grateful for the budding photographer in my kids' group with a good camera and a remote. As I watched the weekend play out, vacillating between annoying first-time homecoming mom and the aloof Gen Xer that is awake deep in my soul, I wondered how we got here. While not hurting anything and certainly understanding you can tailor the experience however big or small, I do wonder if we are setting our kids up for disappointment. Or maybe I've reached the age of not understanding anymore. Or maybe it's just our kids answering the call of the times. This is Tanya Gibson for She Goes On. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and support for Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio is made possible through a grant from Utah Humanities. Listen to episodes on this station through the UPR mobile app or online at upr.org. And USU Libraries presenting the 27th Annual Arrington Mormon History Lecture Thursday, October 13th at 7 in the Russell Wanlass Performance Hall. Details at library.usu.edu. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. Do you have a wartime souvenir displayed in your home or tucked away in storage? USU's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies project, Bringing War Home, invites the community, military and civilian alike, to share your wartime objects and the personal stories that surround them. In partnership, Utah Public Radio will record your story at one of the several project roadshows. You can find details and sign up at upr.org. Sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan. Also heard and streaming online at upr.org.
At Utah Public Radio, we count on contributions from listeners to bring you breaking news, coverage of world events, the environment, and everything else you hear. 